You were created to do good work, work that empowers and inspires, liberates and transforms, restores and softens. Yes, work can be hard, as it was meant to be. The verb itself calls us into action, rejecting passivity and demanding sustained effort. But this work, it changes things. So when you're feeling weary or hopeless or spent, remind yourself that the darkness is being flooded by marvelous light. Yes, this is work, and it is good. Danielle Koch. Today is an episode that I am incredibly excited for. Dr. Eleonora Toplinski has been someone that I have followed on Instagram for a while now. She's the head of breast medical oncology at a hospital in New Jersey, and she uses her platform to share incredibly helpful information and resources. I am so happy that she agreed to come on the podcast today to share her incredible insights, and I hope that you all enjoy learning from her. Hi, Eleonora. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me to be here. Oh, thank you for being here. I am fangirling right now because <laughs> as I said before, I'm, I've been following you and um, on Instagram for a while since I was diagnosed, actually, I think. And you're just, your posts, the research you share, we're going to get into it all, but um, you're a, an amazing resource on Instagram for people that have been diagnosed. So thank you. Of course. Um, so can you start off just by sharing a little bit about how you got into the oncology space? Um, and exactly what your role is and what your specialties are. Absolutely. So I am a medical oncologist. I'm board certified in medical oncology. Don't really do much hematology outside of, you know, rounding in the hospital, things like that. And I specialize in breast and gynecologic cancers. So what that means is those, those are the only cancers that I see in the office. I don't treat lung cancer, colon cancer, any of that. And that's really where the field of oncology is going. People are very subspecialized in what they treat just because, there's so many nuances. The field is constantly growing and, you know, you really have to stay on top of it. I came to oncology kind of, I used to, so I've always wanted to do oncology. My grandmother had ovarian cancer and that was what drew me to the fields at a very young age. But I first wanted to do pediatric oncology, realized that I, I, I give a lot of credit to the pediatric oncologist. I, I didn't, I couldn't, I just, mm -hmm. I couldn't, that was it's a heartbreaking field. Uh, and then I wanted to do gynecologic oncology. And, after, you know, long story short, I, I realized that medical oncology was where I loved and my, where my heart was at. I went to medical school at Tufts in Boston, did my internal medicine residency there, did fellowship at NYU in the city. And uh, here I am. And I practice at Valley Hospital in New Jersey, which is in Bergen County, very close to New York City. We are a satellite site of Mount Sinai. And um, that's pretty much it. I am a mom of two. My husband is a surgeon. I'm a runner. I Peloton a lot. I'm a big fan of diet, focusing on nutrition, exercise. I think that's that's kind yeah. of a lot I, right there. No, it is a lot. I don't know how you do it. Um, it's all amazing, and we are going to touch upon some of the things you just you just shared that are kind of in your interest mm -hmm. wheelhouse. So. Um, I want to first start off about you sharing about your own podcast, 
I'd love to hear kind of when you started that. And I'm a huge fan, so I can only imagine how many people you're helping through that avenue as well. Absolutely. I started the podcast about three years ago now, so February 2019. And I was on maternity leave when the idea came to me. Uh, And I, I really wanted to go beyond the conversations that we were having in the office. And and I had been on social media for a while before that, but very not nearly as involved. And I kind of wasn't sure the direction I wanted to take. And, you know, everyone listening, if you've been to your doctor's office, and I've done this as a patient, you go, it's 10, 15 minutes, you know, maybe sometimes it's longer, but you're, you, by the time, you know, we talk about chemo side effects, we don't have any time to talk about anything else. And I just felt like I wasn't really getting what people were experiencing. And so I thought, well, this doesn't really exist. Now a lot do, but at the time there wasn't much. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, what if I just talk to people and hear their stories? And it honestly has evolved into something much bigger than I could have ever hoped for. Um, And it has really made me a better doctor because the stuff people tell you, first of all, the stuff people tell you when they're not your patient is very interesting, right? Because there's mm-hmm. just, the barrier is not there. Um, but also, when you ask people about their life, and how cancer has changed their life, you re- I don't know, I, I realized very quickly that cancer is a trauma. And there's all this grief and this processing and everything that has to happen. But you just, you don't get that when you see people for 20 minutes, you there's, there's no way. And connecting with the community on social media I think you know I know people I'm always so grateful people say listen to it it helped me but it helps me just as much oh that's so nice thank you for sharing that and I feel like it's incredible that you saw the need and there is such a great need and you're right those appointments fly by and there's always those moments where I'm like driving home from my appointment and I'm like, ah, like I wish we got to talk about this, this, this. Mm -hmm. So it's nice that you're kind of giving that avenue for people to do that. And then also for people to listen that, you know, are not your patients. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that that's just incredible. So thank you for sharing. And I'm going to make sure that I put your podcast information in my show notes too. So that, um, just so it is the interlude podcast. Yeah. Uh, so aptly named because cancer creates an interlude in our lives. And so, Mm -hmm. but I will say too, that I think these podcasts, all of the conversations on there are such great resources, especially for people who are maybe not comfortable in a support group setting. Right. The podcasts, whoever, whosoever they are, yours, mine, all the other amazing ones that are out there, you can pick and choose and you can do it where you don't have to feel vulnerable and sharing. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so important for people to have that option because you're right. There are a lot of people that are not at a point in their experience where they're ready to be in a support group or something like that. But this is a way that they can, you know, listen and shake their head and have something resonate with them so that they know they're not alone. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, And your social media platform, I know you said you were kind of on social media before the podcast, but I feel like it's been growing and I'd love for you to kind of speak to that. Um, you know, you do a lot of informational posts that you create. And I also love that you do kind of a Q&A every weekend um, where people can really ask you whatever question they have on their mind about about cancer. Um, so how did you know that there was such a need for that type of outlet? 
this started back a couple of years, even before the podcast. And I really created it one as a way to start to kind of combat some of the misinformation that we see in oncology. And there is a lot, a lot, um, <laughs> yes. there's a lot about that. So that was one thing. And then also, again, also as an extension of the office. So I very public with my patients know they follow me. And so I direct them there. I'm like, Hey, you know what? You had a question about this. Like this is the post or this is the podcast episode. And a lot of times when new information comes out, you know, I can't call all my patients and say, Hey, right. You know, but they follow me and then they can connect with me after. Um, so it's kind of evolved. And I think the Q and a has been really great because it lets me, to be honest, I randomly did it a year ago and I was like, ah, it's Friday. I'll, I'll put up a Q and a, and then I just kind of started doing it every Friday and it's great. Cause it lets me realize what people are, what, what are they hearing about? Cause look, I can't keep up with everything, but if all of a sudden I get five questions that are the exact same topic, I'm thinking, okay, what something's up with this right now, right? What are people reading about? So I think it gives me a good insight into where people's, concerns and needs and questions are and then honestly I then use that information in my conversations with patients in the office to say I know you're thinking about this. Absolutely it gives you that insight that you probably wouldn't have really had had you not opened that up and exactly what you said your informational posts are often guided by what your followers are wanting, needing, you know, what they're interested in learning about. And you even, you, you put it all out there, which I love with the poll. And then you see which one was by far the most popular Mm -hmm. and you go ahead and create that informational post based off of that topic. And it's just such a easy way to consume information that is trustworthy because I love what you said about misinformation. I think there's a lot out there. Um, And it's very hard as a patient to kind of dig through that and know what's what. Um, So again, another reason why I think it's just a great platform and very helpful. And the one thing that I'll add is whenever, and I always try to say this, is you really want to look at people's credentials. You know, you'll see a lot of posts with bios. Look at the bio. What is there? Are they a physician? Are they a dietitian? Whatever they are. And a lot of times you'll see cancer expert. And I'm always curious, well, what does that mean? Right, right. Are you a patient expert? Are you a provider expert? And how do we, what does it mean to define yourself as an expert? And so I think it's really important because there's so many things people trying to sell you stuff. And Mm -hmm. I get it. That's the way, that's their business. And Mm -hmm. that's social media. But just to take a step back and say, you know, is this a reputable source? And um, I think sometimes you find that they're sometimes not reputable sources. Right, right. No, that's a great tip for anyone listening, for sure. Um, And I would just love to know what is your favorite part of what you do? Because you've listed a lot of different aspects of your career. um, And I'd love to know what your favorite part is. Absolutely. By by far, by far, by far is always talking to patients and learning about who they are, kind of connecting with their families. And one of the reasons I've always loved oncology is you really build these deep, meaningful relationships with patients. You know, you don't always get that in another field where people are coming once a year for a quick check. Uh, and I think we lost a lot with COVID because all of a sudden I wasn't meeting their kids or their spouses or their moms. And 
you you get to really know a lot about a person based on you know the people they're bringing with them to the visits definitely uh but I think just this ability and it's in I'm always humbled and it's such a privilege when people entrust put their trust into you to be their doctor um and this ability to be part of their lives in such an intimate way I mean I I never ever take that for granted oh that's really nice yeah and I'm wondering if you would mind sharing what you find is the most difficult part of what you do. Yeah. And I, I think a couple of things, you know, I actually don't, I don't talk about this a lot and I lately have thought about whether I should, but you know, cancer, um, by the nature of cancer, um, people get diagnosed with metastatic disease, people die. Um, and, and that is, really very hard for oncologists. And I don't talk about that because it's not my, you know, it's not my burden, you know, in, in, a, in a way, I'm trying to say, like, it's not about me when these things mm-hmm. happen. I am here to help you. Um, and I never want to make it about me, which is why I don't share a lot about that online. But you know, it's really hard. And you always, as the oncologist, wonder, could I have done something differently? You know, mm-hmm. I, I put them on this treatment, you know, was this the right one? And I think we always, we always feel that. And, um, and a lot of times, and most of the time, it's nothing that we did or didn't do. Just cancer has a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. And, but those, those moments are, are really, really hard. And I have always said that the day that I don't feel those things, the day that I, don't have, you know, the day that when you talk to someone about hospice, that your heart doesn't break a little bit, then those are the days you should, that's the day you should leave oncology. Mm, Um, But it also is important to keep a a little bit of a professional distance because um, of course there's patients who you build really deeper relationships with people that you almost consider a friend, you know, you've been with them for years, but you know, for some of some distance is important because, um, you know, we have to treat a lot of people. Um, but I think what really is the hardest on top of that is kind of the duality of emotions that we feel. So I may go into one room and talk about hospice and say, I don't have anything else to offer and we need to talk about end of life. And then you have to go right into the other room and they are a 20 year survivor. And then you're going into another room and you're delivering great news and then it's bad news. And you as oncologists, you don't ever get to process, like you just flipping the switch. And and that actually is very, very hard and very draining. Oh uh, my gosh. I, in that sense. Yeah. I can Mm -hmm. absolutely imagine how that would be hard. Um, is there, a tip, and I think maybe this will kind of go into mm-hmm. what we were going to speak about in a little bit, but for you, have you learned ways that kind of help you do self-care and kind of, um, you know what I mean? Like yeah. As, yeah. <laughs> I mean- as an oncologist and having your days filled with, you know, these very deep changing emotions, how do you kind of almost switch it off and change into, you know, mom mode and go yeah. from there? You know, it's, it's, I, for me, so I think exercise is a big part of, I, I need that, that it really fills me in many ways. 
Um, I like having a little bit of a distance. So, you know, it's interesting. So I live about 20 minutes away, 25 minutes away from my office. And there are days and I, I love audiobooks and I'm usually listening to podcasts or audiobooks. And there are days at the end of the day where I just I don't have any energy. Like I would just listen to music and I like can't think about anything. Mm-hmm. And then you go home and that 20 minutes is like enough to be like, okay, now it's time to be mom. But some days are harder than others. Some days are draining. And I think just having, and I and actually, that's why I love social media so much in the sense that that's given me a little bit of an outlet. Um, I don't really post those kind of things online, but it just, it's a nice outlet to, I don't know, it prevents burnout for me. I, I'm yeah. not really sure why, but it has. Um, but I think just figuring out, and we all go through this, right? Whether it's you know, the same thing, you may get bad news on a scan or at an appointment, and then you have to go home and pretend with a four year old that everything is okay. And there's no good way to do that. But figuring out how to take care of yourself, um, however, that may be. And, you know, I think I'm grateful, you know, I wasn't grateful for the opportunity to do this. So I, I, I can recognize that I'm just I'm here. I'm happy to be part of it and to help people through really hard times. But, um, you know, there's there's days that are hard and um, just figuring out how you what makes you get that joy. Right. That could be a cup of coffee. That could be a walk, like doing those little things that bring you joy. And I talk to my patients about this all the time, even in those really hard days. What's 10 minutes of something that's going to bring you a little bit of joy? I love that. And that's such important advice and an important thing for people to kind of find for themselves. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to switch over and talk a little bit about research because I know Mm -hmm. that's something that you do share uh, a lot about on your social media page. Um, Can you share your thoughts on why you think research is so important in the cancer world? Absolutely. I mean, research, you know, all of the things that we do all started as clinical trials. The things that people take now for a standard of care, for septin, you know, the chemotherapy drugs, immunotherapy, hormone blocking medications, all those started once as a clinical trial. And in oncology, you know, the tri- I mean, the research is just exploding, especially in breast cancer. It is exploding. There's new studies, there's new data all the time. And I think that that's how we move the fields forward. You know, you look at immunotherapy for triple negative cancer. We didn't have that as of last July. I mean, that's brand new. It wasn't offered to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) And it changes outcomes and it decreases recurrence by, you know, 37%. I mean, those numbers are incredible, you know? And so I think the challenge that we have is, there's a, there's a lot of challenges with clinical trials. One of them is that, unfortunately, they are still only available in certain places. Mm-hmm. And there are huge disparities in who gets offered trials. There's a big, you know, um, most trials have predominantly white populations. And that's a big, big issue. Um, and so I, I think we have to work really hard about making clinical trials accessible for everybody so that you don't have to travel to the big academic center four hours away right? because if you have two jobs and you have two kids, you're not, you're not going four hours. Right. And now you're out of the trial. And also a lot of people don't realize that clinical trials are even available. Oh yeah. And 
one of the things that I, I did a podcast interview with uh, Kawana Rucker. She's a whole breast cancer survivor and a holistic uh, coach. And she said to me, you were talking, she said, you know, a lot of people don't know that trials are an option. And so now what I try to do is I'll say to people, I don't have a clinical trial here, you know, but I just want you to know that clinical trials are an option at all stages of cancer and so that you're at least having the conversation. So people here understand, because there is also in, you know, certain communities, there's a big distrust in the medical field and mm-hmm. people of all races of all ethnicities are sometimes very, very nervous to go on a trial. So the more we can talk about it, the more we can dispel these myths and barriers, the more accrual we'll get and the faster we'll get these results. Absolutely. Now, is there anything that stands out, any recent research or study or something that stands out to you as being one that you would like to share a little bit right now that kind of is the most, maybe the most exciting or the biggest Yeah, so let's let's do we'll do three. So we'll do ear positive, triple negative, and HER2 positive. There's one for there's one for everybody. Yes. Um so for ear positive, I think the biggest thing, I mean, there's a lot of small studies, but in terms of the biggest kind of recent stuff that's changed how we think about our treatment is gonna be for premenopausal women who are lymph node positive. And the data says that regardless of oncotype, you would benefit from chemo. So that's been a huge huge change in how we treat, how we, you know, what we recommend. For triple negative, um, the big one really that's kind of dating back um, is going to be, well, two things. So one is the approval for PARP inhibitors in BRCA mutated patients, and that's both for triple negative and ER positive. Okay. For high-risk patients and immunotherapy big, I mean, those, those two are game changers. And then for HER2 positive, the new drug in HER2, it's not so new anymore, but really improving outcomes significantly in metastatic HER2 positive, but we are having trials to move it earlier. And so when all of these drugs, you know, it's important to know all of the drugs are initially first tested in metastatic cancer for a number of reasons. Um, One, you get quick results because Mm -hmm. you can measure in, unfortunately, metastatic cancer progresses faster than an early stage cancer. And so you can measure outcomes and say, did it work? Did it not work faster? Um, You know, and then you move it to stage three and then you move it to stage two and so forth. Um, So that's kind of the, the, the standard process. Absolutely. Yeah. And what would you say is your motivation to share this new research? Like, why do you think it's important to get it out there? For two reasons. One, I I think that I'm a big believer in being your own advocate, but you can't advocate for something if you don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the data, so some of the big, big data hits the mainstream media. Uh, Half the time it's not reported correctly, or it's just reported very broadly. So then you're like, well, I don't know, can I get this or not, right? So I want to have a central place where people can come and kind of get more information. And so then you can advocate for yourself. So you're not going to ask me, hey, can I get this? You're going to call your doctor and say, I heard about this. Is this right for me or not? Um, And then two, selfishly, I have a lot of patients that I can't communicate. You know, if there's a game-changing event, I don't really have a way to call like 100 people. But and other, short of like your, your next appointment's coming up and we can talk about it. But if I put it out there, people see it and they call and then we're, you know, yeah. kind of getting them in that way. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's just really to be your best, to be an advocate, to empower yourself. And you can't do that unless you don't have the information. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't or are not given that information. Right. Yeah. So as you've said, I mean, research, it's it's ever changing. And I feel like I agree with you that in the past few years, more information is coming out. And I don't know if that's, you know, I think that everybody has seen the way that information about COVID has evolved and how, you know, the research and these studies go into the vaccines and everything. So we're seeing firsthand in that way, how important science is and how incredible it can be. Um, And then, especially in the oncology space, you know, I have recently had my own personal kind of experience where I got a phone call out of the blue about a gene that they're now kind of saying could have been tied to my triple negative breast cancer, and that's RAD51D. Um, When I was diagnosed, they were like, we don't know enough about it now. This is not something we're even going to talk about or worry about. You may get a call in 10 years. You may not. Um, and I got that call this past fall. So, you know, being presented with a lot of different, um, choices and big choices to make, but part of me, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't kind of set back by all of it because it's all, you know, I, am working as a triple negative survivor. I've, I'm at that three year mark. So I'm really like working towards, you know, Um, working hard in my survivorship and my mental health and my physical health, but this did set me back. But I also would be lying if I said I was upset at knowing that now there's a little bit of maybe scientific explanation as to maybe why this happened to me. So again, that, that research piece I think is, is just so important. And Um, as an an aside, I think what you just said say it again, working through your survivorship, right? I know I'm not interviewing you, but I I think that it is so important because that's exactly what people need to do. It's not Mm -hmm. like, oh, you rang the bell with chemo. You're done. Bye. See you in six months. Hope all goes well for you. Like it is a constant struggle. And I think the more we talk about it, the more people recognize that you are not alone in all of those feelings the better we make that experience for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I switching gears just a tiny bit, but it's still kind of about research. I'm wondering, do you have any um, favorite fundraising efforts or organizations that people can donate to and know that that their funds are going to go right to research? Because there's also, I feel like a lot of misinformation about that in the cancer world, unfortunately, Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you would speak on that for a second, that would be great. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, there's some major organizations that go, you know, I would say 100 percent or essentially 100 percent of the proceeds go to funding research. And those are things like MetaViber, Breast Cancer Research Foundation, TMBC Foundation. um, And then, you know, you have bigger ones like American Cancer Society. And I think that and then also if you are treated at an um, institution that does research, a lot of times you can actually donate money to your hospital, then you can say, I want this money to go for research on this, you know? So we get calls all the time. People say, are you doing any research in this space? Because that's where I want to donate. Um, Wow. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Absolutely earmark your research, you know, depending on where you're donating. For the bigger organizations, um, you know, 
I won't name kind of the ones that don't. No, you don't have research, to. <laughs> but uh, ask, you know, before you're donating, say, hey, um, you know, how, where is my money going? Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of those, these are all nonprofits. So all that information is publicly available. And right. some of them, you're getting like 10% of your money to research. And why? That's your money. You want it to go to good things. Right. And one of the things, because kind of as an aside, but in October, right, where we're dealing with all breast cancer awareness. Oh, yes. It kills me because they will, pink will be on everything. Mm -hmm. And 10% of your money to buy that processed red meat, you know, or whatever that processed sugar is, is going to research and 90% of it's on you know, or some of it, none of that money is going, they would just put a pink ribbon on and none of the money is going. Exactly. So I think yeah. it's really important to be intentional, like you said, about where you donate and don't be afraid to ask you are donating your money. So you have a say in, in where it's, uh, it's where, where it's going. Conquer, Conquer Cancer Foundation is also a great one. That's part of ASCO, American Society for Clinical Oncology. Yep. And that directly goes to investigators to fund their research, which I think is really, really awesome. Oh, that's great. That's such good advice. Definitely. Um, as you said before, you are such an advocate for having a healthy lifestyle, which I think is so important. It's something I've talked about on the podcast a bunch as well. Um, and you kind of, um, on your social media and your stories will post like what your daily movement is. And I love it because it really is a motivator and it's fun to see kind of the human side of an oncologist, you know, like what you're doing, you're, you're doing what you preach, you know, and that's as a patient, I think that that's really, um, important to see. And I was wondering if you would just talk about why you think this kind of idea of a healthy lifestyle is so important. I think exactly what you said. So I will never recommend something to people that I don't do myself. And I have run, I've always been a runner, but when COVID hit, you know, we really, we were, there was a lot of anxiety. No one knew what was going to happen. And, you know, we used to, we were just pouring like glasses of wine every night. And finally, my husband and I said, well, what are, what are we doing here? Right. Let's not gain mm-hmm. 20 pounds on top right. of all of this. <laughs> and we really, and he at that point had wanted to be more plant-based. So we really just kind of made a commitment. And I always felt like, you know, our diet was good. And then when we started really being intentional with what we were eating and drinking and moving on a very consistent basis, I felt so much better. And that's really been kind of the evolution that I know. I, again, I I thought I felt fine, but then when you feel better, you go, oh, like I'm not dragging at parts of the day and things like that. Um, But we know that in cancer and specifically in breast cancer, that that movement, um, you know, you can't, there's so much you can't control. You can't control the chemo you're going to get, whether this cancer is coming back or not, but you can reduce your risk through movement and diet. And you also can control how you feel. So the mental health that come, the mental health benefits that come with eating right and moving your body, you can't beat that. You really can't. <laughs> you just, you can't. And so doing that, I think, can help really get through hard times. And we see, we see people that move their body do better with, with side effects. They do better with how they're able to handle side effects. Um, not, you know, again, there's always going to be exceptions. This is more of kind of on an average scale. But I think that's something you can do for yourself, irrespective of like what cancer is doing to your body. Oh, totally. And I, 
I read that research. It honestly might've been in on one of your posts, um, right. As I was finishing up treatment and that is, that alone was the motivation that I needed. And I was always a, uh, active person. Um, and I considered myself to be healthy, but I was one of those people that would make excuses. Um, you know, I don't have time to exercise. I have my two kids and now like, 30 minutes a day, no matter what's going on, I find the time, I make it work. And that I think has made a huge difference, like you said, not only for my physical health and, but my mental health. And Mm -hmm. it's that piece where I feel like I am not in control of my cancer and whether it comes back or not, but I'm going to control the things that I can control that I know could help it not come back exactly and a lot of people say well how do you fit it in right so first you start with five minutes or ten minutes but realistically I think you can't do everything in a day there's only Mm -hmm. finite amount of time and you have to think about what you're willing to give up Mm -hmm. so for me I will give up like anything so that I can exercise I mean Mm -hmm. short of coming to work and like seeing patients (laughs) but laundry that can wait oh yeah dishes I mean that can like those things can wait right an email that can wait and so figuring out how am I going to prioritize that 30 minutes or 20 minutes what 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 can I give up and I think that this is where it's really important to say to the people in your life whether it's your spouse your whoever you know your children your parents your friends I need to prioritize this can you help me Mm -hmm. prioritize this I'm not going to be able to get up and make you lunch every day now because I need to work out can you make your own like things like that that if we don't communicate with the people in our life we're going to fail at this oh I could not agree more I mean it totally you need that support especially when you're talking about your own family if kids are involved yeah it you can't do it alone and you need that support and maybe that motivation, you know, ask your spouse or someone to kind of help motivate you if you're having a hard time with that. But yeah, I think that's, that's great advice for sure. Um, and you kind of already, um, shared a little bit more cause it's not just movement. You, you touched a little bit upon a healthy diet. I was wondering if you would expand on that and if there's anything else in this healthy lifestyle idea that you think should be highlighted. To talk about diet, we know that, you know, you kind of want to be somewhere between that Mediterranean and plant-based diet. Uh, I'm personally not a big fan of keto because I think that it's hard um, to do it where you're really more focusing on whole foods, but I know that it works for some people. And if that's what helps you, then, and you're maintaining a healthy weight and you're exercising, then I am all for that. Um, But what we really know is limiting red meat limiting processed meat, so that's bacon, deli meat, sausages, limiting processed foods, ultra processed foods. And that is hard to do because so many things are processed and it's very easy when we're shut for time to reach for that convenient Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And, you know, focusing more on whole foods, fruits and vegetables. So my two points here to make one, just because it says vegan doesn't mean it's healthy. Vegan's got a lot of processed yeah, there. So you have to be careful. And that's why I really say plant based rather than vegan. Right. And then two, don't keep those foods in your house. Um, that's where people will say, but I, I can't avoid this. Don't have it there because at 10 o'clock at night, you're not going to go to the grocery store. But if it's in front of you, you're going to eat it. Yeah. Um, 
So, and then along with diet, along with exercise, it's the other stuff, sleep. If you are not sleeping, then none of this other stuff matters. It's meditation or stress management. How am I taking care of my mental health? So all of those things go together. And I see very often I will hear from patients saying, I have a hard time losing weight. I am not losing weight. And look, the medications that people are on absolutely increase weight gain. So I'm not discrediting those in any way. But often we'll see people are working out, but they're not sleeping. And sleep is this restorative force in our body that nothing can align unless we're sleeping. So I think that's something that we actually don't talk a lot about, but is so important. And then lastly, alcohol use. It's the risk factor no one wants to talk about, mm-hmm. um, but we, it's a carcinogen and we really need to limit our alcohol use. In breast cancer, we recommend about three drinks per week on average or less. So that means some weeks you may have more if you're on vacation, and then but you're going to balance that out. And I really try to get people to get away from this like glass of wine with dinner thing. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And I think that that is something I struggled with a lot is um, transitioning. And again, we ate healthy as a family prior to my diagnosis, but I definitely have transitioned more into creating meals just from like whole foods. I, I try to limit the boxes that we have. Mm-hmm. That's yep. kind of how I say it. Yeah, I like um, that. And it's and it's a struggle with kids, as I'm sure you mm-hmm. know, because yeah. they're going to school and they're comparing snacks and lunches. And, you know, my seven-year-old is already coming home and saying like, can you pack this for snacks? So um, we use it as a teaching opportunity to them too. Like they saw what I went through and Um, we talk about a healthy diet and, um, but kind of, I'm wondering what your take on this is because I struggled. I almost went to an extreme post-treatment and I was at the point where I, you know, when we would go over to a family member's house and like they were cooking dinner, I would almost have anxiety over what I was eating because I didn't maybe love all of the ingredients in it or, um, do you have any advice on how somebody can kind of balance and that kind of aspect and know that, you know, one, if you're taking your kids to ice cream to celebrate something, having ice cream one time is not going to make your cancer come back, Mm -hmm. but it's more about that lifestyle, the well-rounded lifestyle. It's so hard because you're right. You can easily get swept up in it, but one burger, one beer, one pizza, none of that is making your cancer come back. It is not. And and it's just, it's not. And so I like to think of it as what am I eating sometimes? And what am I eating always, right? So you're always foods, that's your whole foods, it's your healthy stuff. Um, And then it's a weekend, you're taking the kids out for ice cream, you're at a friend's house, you're at a party, enjoy it. I think the key Mm -hmm. is to get away from feeling guilty, because now you've eaten it, and you didn't enjoy it, and you felt guilty. So what was the whole point and all that, right? right? right. So you're like, this tastes really, really good. And I think that sometimes for our mental health, we need that piece of cake because it just feels really good. And so you eat it and you're like, that was great. And when you don't deprive yourself of those things and you don't develop those unhealthy eating behaviors and for parents and especially moms, I think our kids are always watching and always. And so they want to see you eating ice cream with them. But they also don't want to see you obsessing because that just teaches unhealthy behaviors in our kids. So, you know, my kids, um, they know, I mean, we like 
they know that sometimes on the weekends we'll have kind of unhealthy or I don't like unhealthier food. I call it like sometimes food. And yeah. then during the week we'll have, you know, our always foods. And so during the week they're having fruit for dessert, but on the weekend they're eating chocolate or a cookie or ice cream. And I don't, I let them have whatever they want at birthday parties. And I think that kind of is a balance. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they will come home and they go, Oh, you know, someone brought like, you know, cookies for snack and I don't have cookies for snack. And we just, do the same thing. Those are sometimes foods. And, you know, our bodies aren't going to grow with the sometimes foods, like that kind of thing, really turning yes. into, like you said, a teaching tool and talking about how they are foods that we eat always really give us energy and help our brains and help our eyes. And um, it's hard, but you got to, you know, if it's important to you, then you separate on it. Oh, I, I could not agree more. And I actually love your sometimes and always. I think I'm going to steal that and use that term. I won't take too. credit. I actually got it from <laughs> okay. uh, Dr. Renee Perro. She's a, a cardiologist and she's really, if people follow her, she's big on like the healthy eating. But I heard that on her podcast and I go, wow. I mean, that was, that was like huge because I don't like saying healthy or unhealthy, even though we right. know that's how we think of it. But yes, for kids, I think it creates kind of, you know, disordered ways of thinking about things totally like sometimes we call it sometimes like having a treat after dinner but like that almost makes it tie with like behavior I don't know that that terminology I don't love either um but we haven't found so that's that's great I really love that yeah um but there have been oh sorry go ahead no no I was just gonna say that like getting and this is for adults too I think getting away from food as a reward for anything like I I have never look I'll bribe my kids with lots of other stuff um books and stickers and whatever but I never have and never will bribe with food because I think it's the same thing as adults right like you know the same thing when we think about wine people were like I deserve a glass of wine at the end of the day no you don't you want it and it's okay to say I want wine but just getting away from that I had a hard day so now I have to reward myself with food I love that I really love that thank you for sharing your insight about that um yeah and we've already seen it kind of change, especially in my seven-year-old, you know, he's old enough to really, um, kind of take it to heart. And, uh, because we've been doing it for so long, it is more kind of innate in him now. And there have been days where he's almost learned, like we've gone to a birthday party or something and he ends up with a tummy ache. And we kind of also use that as a Mm -hmm. learning moment because we're like, you know, we don't, always have those foods and sometimes when you eat too much of it it can really harm like hurt your stomach and you know so I think that that's a very we could do a whole episode on that I think absolutely (laughs) like I love talking about that kind of stuff yeah absolutely um well I would love to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at the end of every episode and that is in your life what are you grateful for now more than ever Oh gosh, that it's is, hard. That's I know. a hard. That's a hard, <laughs> hard question. Honestly, you know, um, I I think I am. I, so I'm great. I'm grateful for for a couple of things. I mean, I am. I'm grateful for. I I never. I've always. This is what I always wanted to do, but I wasn't ever sure that I would get to do that on some level, like subconsciously, like. Mm-hmm. And I am always just amazed that I get to come to work every day and do something that I have dreamed of doing my entire life, which I think is amazing. Um, But I'm also really grateful for my family and my kids. And I I see that understanding that some people are listening who may be triggered 
by that who are not able to have children or unable to conceive. And I, I'm here for you. And I, I hear that. Um, but finding people in your life that you love and whoever they may be, it's, you know, I think we've learned that so much with COVID that mm -hmm. all this other stuff is kind of sometimes meaningless and just the ability to go home and hug someone in your life, um, whoever, whoever that may be, a pet, a fur baby, a grandparent, those things mean a lot. Oh my gosh. Connection, community. Mm -hmm. It's so, so, so important. And I agree with you. I think COVID taught all of us that, um, but, you know, cancer also teaches that that to you as well, that you're the people that you surround yourself with that are with you through it all. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to to have people like that in your life. So I love that answer. Thank you. Dr. Toplinski, I can't. I'm just so excited that you were here and that you shared so much helpful information. And I am going to put all of your information in the show notes so that people can find you if they don't already follow you. Um, but thank you so, so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. This was so fun. And it's always nice being on the other side of the microphone. Yeah. Like, this is easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, really, I appreciate the time. You <laughs> clearly are very busy. You have your hands full. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. If you are not already following Dr. Toplinski on Instagram, I highly recommend it. Next week, I will be sharing an interview with Julia Becker Collins. She is a thyroid cancer survivor, a very successful businesswoman, and she actually went through her whole cancer experience right at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. So she's going to be speaking to what that was like. Um, and sharing a little bit more about thyroid cancer and what her life is like now.